You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode... 57, no, 67. 67. 67. 10 more than we previously thought. Than I said, yeah, from 10 seconds ago. Welcome <laughs> to episode, welcome, welcome. We're off to a great start. This is episode 67 of the Common Descent Podcast. Today, we are going to highlight once again a particular fossil site, mm-hmm. but not just any particular fossil site, the La Brea Tar Pits. Yes. One of the most famous fossil sites. I'm sure someone out there could uh, very convincingly argue that it is the most famous fossil site in the world. It's the only one I can think of off the top of my head that I have seen in multiple movies. Yep. Shows up all the time. The La Brea Tar Pits are an astonishingly rich collection of fossil material from the late Pleistocene toward the end of the Ice Age. Not only are there tons of fossils in there but they cover a range of ages that takes it right through the end of the pleistocene which means not only is it a rich source of learning about individual animals and plants and such it's also a great place to look at how ecosystems changed over time yes it's also a major tourist attraction because unlike most fossil sites it is in the middle of a huge city yeah it's downtown down to, it's in Los Angeles on Wilshire Boulevard, right there. <laughs> Wilshire? Someone in California is mad at me. <laughs> and it's been around, actively excavated for more than a century. Which is insane. So it's, ju- it's just this wonderful, perfect storm set up for a world-famous fossil site. We're going to talk about how it got to be the way it is, a little bit of the history of human interaction and excavation on the site, and then we will talk about what sorts of things they find there, the lucky jerks, <laughs> and what sorts of cool research you can do. This topic was also requested by two of our patrons, Ooh. Brooke and Cheryl, and by Lizzie on Twitter. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for suggesting. But before that, we have a few announcements. First and foremost, this episode will not be alone. Nope. Because... We had the glorious opportunity earlier this summer to go to Southern California Mm -hmm. when we were at NAPC, and we got to sit down and chat with a bunch of the people from La Brea. So after this episode, uh, as a companion to this episode, we will be releasing a little interview anthology of voices from La Brea, people we got to meet, people who work there. Yeah, it was a lot of fun getting to talk with a bunch of them. Yeah, so we talked with Dr. Emily Lindsay, who's curator there, and we talked to uh, Dr. Maureen Belisi, who is a postdoc, and we talked to Sean Campbell, who's a preparator who came to visit us at the Great Fossil Site a while back, and more. So keep an eye out for that. Once you're done listening to this episode, go find it. It should be in the same place you found this. Yes. Hey, we have patrons, too. We do. And they give us money, and we really like them for it. We do. And indeed, if our patrons donate to us above a certain level... We will say their names on the podcast. We do! So this time, we welcome Tatum. Hi, Tatum. Thanks for joining us. 
hey, if you're a patron, we, we put like bonus news up on Patreon, mm-hmm. like extra audios, and we have like director's notes that we've been writing recently, and it's pretty cool. You should try it out. Yeah. Yeah. If you're not a patron, hey, maybe think about it. It's, uh, all yeah. that stuff's there. All that stuff's there. It helps us out quite a bit. At the end of this episode, we will answer another patron question. Yes. Because that's the thing our patrons can do. Hey, speaking of additional audios, we, today, actually, earlier to this this day that we are recording this on, <laughs> we sat down with our friend Brian mm-hmm. and recorded a guest appearance on A Touch of Grey. Yes. So we mentioned them before. Our friends Sean and Brian at the Grey Fossil site have been making a podcast, which is a historical and modern sort of behind-the-scenes look at the Grey Fossil site. Yeah. And for a while, they've been talking about having us on to talk about our history at the site, and it finally happened. It was a lot of fun. It was great. We got to sit down with Brian. Sean was not there because Sean is falling apart. Swift recoveries, uh, we hope hope to Sean. By the time this episode comes out, that episode with us on it uh, of A Touch of Grey should be out. Yeah, it should have just come out. So go to your local podcast place and search for A Touch of Grey. G-R-A-Y. Yeah. What else we got coming up? Hey, Dragon Con's at the end of this month. It is. It's coming up quick. It is for the very last weekend, uh, August into September. And we're going to be there like we were last year. Yes. So if you're going to be at Dragon Con, if you're going to be in the Atlanta area, come say hi. We are going to be on a number of panels. So we're not just going to be walking around, probably dressing up. We should figure that out. Yeah. But on some of the science track panels. And indeed, we can tell you which panels we're going to be on. Yeah. Now, this is tentative because the schedule's still being tweaked. So, the subject to change, listen into episode 68 <laughs> for, for adjustments. <laughs> By then, hopefully we should know. I sure hope so. <laughs> or, or if you're going, check the app, all that stuff. Yes. But as of right now, we are going to be on two panels together. Mm-hmm. Will, what panels are we going to be on? So we have the two that we'll be sharing, which is our paleontology hour. Heck yeah, yeah. which we should be, again, uh, cooperatively doing that with Trevor Valley. Yep, which will be fun. Yep, that's Saturday evening. Yep. And then we will be doing the Science versus Movies, Ooh. which is a discussion of how absolutely accurate all movie sciences. Yeah, it'll be the opposite of our silver screen yes. science. <laughs> it'll be us having to justify with a few tongues and cheeks. Yes, lots of tongues and lots of cheeks. And that will uh, be on sun- Sunday evening. Yes, and uh, Trevor will hopefully be on that one as well. Yes, as well as a f- uh, at least a couple others people, one or two. Yes, and you're on one without me. I am. I have a speculative evolution uh, panel that I'll be working on with the how we make monsters. And that's Sunday midday. So that is... We, we submitted the idea to do a speculative evolution panel. And if only one of us was going to get it, I'm glad it's you. I'm so excited for it. So there's a number <laughs> of people that I have not gotten to meet yet. I'm excited to meet them. Yeah. And we'll talk about how we could evolve some of the creatures in our favorite fictions. And shortly after that, Sunday, early afternoon, I'm going to be on a panel called How Science Dates Things. Which is going to be all about how we determine the age of things on our planet and in the universe, uh, as as of now, again, tentative, I'm listed on here. A couple other names, including Dr. Pamela Gay, which is like, that's so awesome. <laughs> I'm not usually starstruck to, nah, that's funny yeah, for that. people who know who Dr. Gay is. Ah. Um, 
But that's pretty cool because she's on Astronomy Cast, which is one of the podcasts that inspired this podcast to get started. So I hope that that doesn't change. I hope I get to sit next to Dr. Pamela Gay. That'd be awesome. (laughs) So yeah, it's going to be awesome. If you're going to be near near or in Dragon Con, come by and say hi. Uh, We're going to have a lot of fun. We're so excited. Uh, Are we going to go to the Fern Bank? I don't know. We should go to the Fern Bank. Yes. I I vote yes. We should. Okay. One other thing. Now, this is a little bit early to announce. There's a lot coming up before this. But you may recall that last year, in October, we did a special series about speculative evolution Mm -hmm. surrounding monsters, which we called Spookulative Evolution. (laughs) And by we, I mean Will. (laughs) Or Spooky. And you'll be thrilled to know what's happening again. Yep. In the works. Notes have been begun. <laughs> so when when October comes around, uh, keep your ears open. That's a lot of announcements. Yes. And I think we're done. Yep. Which All of our announcements out of the way. It's time for news. News. Hey, every episode we talk about news. Will. My first news is about the Millennium Falcon. Uh, it does. It did happen. <laughs> it did exist a long time ago. Yep. But a little too far away. So we're talking about one more close by. Go on. There was a a new specimen uh, of small predator found in the Burgess Shale that has a similar shape to a spaceship and Uh, has therefore been connected to the Millennium Falcon. Because paleontologists are nerds. Because we're nerds. (laughs) So this is, this is research by Joseph Moishuk. And Jean-Bernard Caron in, published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. And the article we're linking to is by Joshua Sokol in Science Mag. And this is, uh, so Burgess Shale in Can- Canadian Rockies, roughly 507 million years ago. Famous, famous fossil site. You know, uh, like the famous fossil site we're going to talk about in this episode. <laughs> this is a little creature, uh, about hand size, I think they said, yeah. The carapace is about hand size. So uh, that's actually fairly large for the Burgess Shale. Yeah, that's it, decent. It would have been one of the larger creatures on the, the sediment bottom, uh, they said. At the time, it was nicknamed the spaceship because of the <laughs> shape of the carapace. It has this very swoop-backed uh, uh, profile to sort it. Sort of like a horseshoe crab. Very kinda. horseshoe crab-esque. Yeah. And they started finding hundreds of specimens of these little creatures. Unknown and evidently super numerous. Uh, they so they started looking into it and they identified it, uh, gave it a, a new classification of Cambroraster falcatus, and the falcatus <laughs> is for the Millennium Falcon. Nice. <laughs> and they said it was to have some fun. <laughs> yeah, of course. This is uh, interesting because typically you only find hard parts. Uh, and most of the specimens for this animal are only preserving hard parts, but they did find at least one very well-preserved specimen that preserved the entire body. Oh, cool. And that gave them a really good look. And so the carapace has two eyes on either side that and have these deep eye sockets, which they said is what gives it that spaceship look. And then it has a little short, soft body behind it with a bunch of little undulating swimming flaps. Yeah. And then the mouth is where a lot of people have referenced its weirdness and uniqueness. It has this kind of circular mouth with tooth-like plates around it. And then these comb-like claws on either side of the mouth that could have been brought out like a basket. 
And it's being interpreted as a predator. Oh, that's interesting. That would have been, from what they can see, scuffling around in the sediment. Yeah, for scooping stuff, stuff up. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And this is... Uh, no, not Anne. They, this has been placed in with the radiodonts, which includes the famous Anomalocaris, which was the giant predator of the time, the meter-long swimming predator. And so this would be a, a smaller cousin of that, that big predator, but still would have been one of the largest on the sediment floor. And the thing that makes it that makes it notable is it shows that they were there were multiple hunting techniques going on during this time. You know, that, that predators were already using very diverse techniques. This one scrounging through the sea floor is uh, notable for the radiodonts of how much diversity they had. And one person in the article even noted that it, it's almost surprising that they were outcompeted considering how well they had covered the niches. Hmm. And then the final cool thing is they found a couple of, uh, at least one area where they had dozens of separate carapace parts and claws which seems to suggest that this this organism would congregate for either uh huddling together for safety or reproduction or to molt yeah that was my thought yeah to molt together and we're leaving behind pieces of their carapace that's pretty cool uh which would be interesting and horseshoe crabs gather in these big conglomerations so it might have been something like that or crabs when they right right group together there are crabs that group together for mass moltings yeah it will strengthen numbers while you're all squishy yep if someone gets eaten statistically it's less likely to be you now yes <laughs> <laughs> and so uh the exciting thing about this as well is there have been other specimens of these spaceships found that were either misidentified or unrecognized in museum collections and ah. even some similar ones noted in other sites around the world. So it seems like this or close cousins of it were very successful. It's always really fun to, to to find a group of organisms that was super diverse and super widespread at times where the ecosystem was totally different. Yes. And then vanished nonetheless. Now, presumably in the case of this new creature, I assume that it went extinct because the hyperdrive never worked when it needed it to. Well, no, it's no matter how many times they fixed it. You would think that eventually... <laughs> That's a cool find. Yeah, I like it. Nice. Well, my new first news is also about creatures with carapaces. That's a segue. <laughs> uh, turtles. This is an analysis of early turtles... And a look at how at the, the microscopic structure of the shells as shells were evolving into the shells as we know them today. Interesting. This is research by Rainer Schoch et al. in Scientific Reports. And we'll link to an article written on the PLOS Paleo blogs by John Tennant. So as we discussed in episode 60 about turtles, turtles got their start in the Triassic. And there are a bunch of famous transitional turtles that show a kind of confusing sequence of development of the various parts of the shell. Yes. This research took a particular look at three that we mentioned in that episode, Papochiles, Eorhynchochiles, and Odontochiles, all of which have some level of development of the plastron, the underside of the shell, but little to no carapace, the yes. backside of the shell. Odontochiles and Eorhynchochiles are both late Triassic China, and Papochiles comes from Middle Triassic of Germany, this study took a histological analysis, that is, they looked at the microstructure of the bones, 
of a handful of different elements, vertebrae, limb bones, ribs, of the turtles they could get their hands on to compare. Odontochiles, for example, has a shell very much like modern turtles. There are certain features in the shell, like the article specifically mentions strain-resistant fibers. This sort of unique growth pattern in the shell that is meant to resist stress. Yeah. And they found that Papochiles had a similar structure. Not necessarily the same, but a similar structure. Whereas Odontochiles has it fully, like, or already very turtle-like. Okay. And this was in the ribs, which would eventually form the carapace, which suggests that even before the carapace was fully formed, we're already seeing stress and strain put on those ribs, which the authors suggest is probably from muscular ventilation of the lungs. Okay, yeah. As we discussed in episode 60, turtles don't breathe the same way most animals do because their bodies are shaped weird. Because they're weird. There's also some suggestion that the ribs may have been starting to become interconnected in a what they called a protocarapace, <laughs> the beginnings of it. And then they used this analysis to explore the question, which again we discussed back in 60, of the origins of turtles. About time. Because again, it's like with snakes, really. It's been suggested that they got their start in aquatic, but also in terrestrial ecosystems. They found that Papochiles, this early a stem turtle turtle cousin has thickened bone similar to what's seen in a lot of aquatic organisms but a bunch of other features are not like aquatic organisms they are boreal they're climbing in trees no they were not climbing in trees <laughs> but they do have like their bone structure is not the same as what we see in modern aquatic turtles according to this study okay And they also pointed out that there's a bunch of other features of the body that don't seem to quite match up with an aquatic lifestyle. So they're suggesting that this turtle, at least this one, was probably not aquatic, maybe partially aquatic. They favor the digging hypothesis, that the turtles got their start as burrowers with an expanded belly for stability while digging. Now, I can't say that without also saying that Absolutely, there are going to be researchers that don't agree with that. In fact, in John's article, he quotes another researcher saying, basically, while you compared the bone histology here with other aquatic reptiles, would be real cool to compare it with digging reptiles. Yes. To test that hypothesis. So there's more to come, but interesting insights into the bone structure of transitional turtles. That's a cool bit of evidence, isn't you know, a cool clue for the fact that they were, you know, if not already shellifying their belly, that their ribs were already starting to undergo some sort of similar stresses. Yeah, yeah, they were starting to, they, they, they were already adapting to the kinds of conditions yes. the shell would later have to put up with. Which is really cool. It's also cool, you know, if those stresses are not, the same purposes that the shell serves now because that's very evolution yes of, very exaptation of them i was doing one thing and then stumbled upon it working for another thing uh neat i i, I would love to see more of these studies into turtles because I, I that mystery of turtles is always exciting when we get a new little piece to it yeah so you hear that turtle researchers get on it yes steve <laughs> you were looking at you <laughs> Well, my next news is about mammals. Okay. 
and early mammals. Okay. Uh, there's a specific bone that we mammals have in our jaw slash back of throat area that's not unique to us, but our version of it is. And it's called the hyoid. Ooh, cool bone. Cool bone. Well, this news is about researchers that found a fairly modern looking hyoid in a very early mammal ancestor. Oh, which is cool. Research by Chengfu Zhou et al. in Science. And the article we're looking to is by Carolyn Gramling in Science News. This is a, a research on a little fossil ancestor to mammals uh, that dates back about 165 million years ago to the Jurassic. So this is Microcodon. Microcodon. Gracilis. <clears throat> this is Microcodon gracilis, which is a little shrew-sized mammaliform. Yeah. And now, so mammaliforms are ancestors to modern mammals. Uh, there are some who will group some of these within mammals, so it's not like a very clean-cut line. There, uh, evidently, there's some people who use mammaliform more often than others. But in this research, they're naming it a mammaliform. Right. For more, episode 47. Yes, go look at those. <laughs> and meaning that it is close to mammals, but it's not quite what we would consider a true modern mammal. But it has a hyoid very similar to modern mammals. Oops. They found a specimen with a well-preserved hyoid that looks basically, it's a little different, there's a couple of pieces here and there that are different, but it looks basically like the hyoids we all have and other animal, other mammals today have, which is notable because the, mam the mammalian hyoid is credited for a lot of things that make mammals unique and potentially very successful. One of them is it's where a bunch of our jaw muscles attach, so it gives us very good chewing ability. Uh, many people have cited the... Uh, type of hyoid we have, which is a very flexible hyoid. It's shaped, as they describe it, like a saddle, and it's able to bend and flex, which allows for uh, certain chewing mechanics that are either more difficult or impossible in other animals. Because all ver all uh, vertebrates, from fish to mammals, have a hyoid pretty much, but theirs are usually very rigid. So chewing is one thing. It allowed us to chew our food, which not a lot of other animals do. And it is credited with being one of the reasons we can suckle, yeah. why we can drink milk and create that powerful suction. So if those features uh, are to be credited with this flexible hyoid, and if Gracilis here has this flexible hyoid, it suggests that some of these mammal features may have actually predated what we would consider modern mammals. Cool. And it gets even cooler because they said when they started, once they knew what to look for, and they started looking for it... In other early mammals, they started finding similar hyoids all over the place. So evidently, being a modern mammal is not as unique as, or unique to just modern mammals. Right, right. As we had considered, which may mean we have to rewrite exactly what a mammal is versus a mammaliform is. Because mm -hmm. if they were able to do a lot of that weird chewing and maybe even suckling, then that uh, semi-rewrites uh that group always interesting to see and we've we've discussed this in other episodes that y the features that define a group usually show up here and there maybe multiple times gradually over time before they finally come together into the familiar or organization that we know absolutely and it it's one of those curses of the fossil record that the more we learn the hazier the lines get yeah because in truth there are no lines 
things. No, this the, the shrew thing did not give birth to a mammal. Yes. It was gradual acquisition of these features. And and you would be hard-pressed, and people would and do argue over exactly where the line should be placed when you have full resolution. Yep. There is one difference here. Uh, the hyoid in Gracilis is still attached to the stapes, which was one of our jaw bones, but is now one of our inner ear bones. And so this was before, or at least not yet, had the stapes separated from the jaw and become isolated in the inner ear to give us the high-tuned mammal hearing. That is another thing people have credited to being uh, one of the successes or things that led to the success of mammals. So it, it's, a, it's still a little different. There are, there are uh, significant changes that had to happen before it was truly our hyoid, but it's got a lot of interesting features we wouldn't expect to see in such an early mammaliform. Very cool. Yeah. Also, to get a little human-centric for a second, the particular shape and function of the hyoid in humans is, has been pointed to as potentially one of the things that allows us to speak yes. like we do. And if it weren't for that, we wouldn't be coming to you, dear listeners, here on this podcast. We'd be uh, using display signs. And we'd be bop, 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 <laughs> making weird, simple noises. Hey, my next bit of news is also about mammals. Oh. But the most exciting thing in the news is an invertebrate. Intrigue. This is research on a new discovery of an ancient whale. Cool. But there's more. This is research by B.K. Ships et al. in the journal Royal Society Open Science, and I had I did not find a news bit about it. Ooh. But the actual paper is open access, so we'll post the paper itself on the blog, and if, uh, if a new article is written about it, we'll post to that. Yay. Maybe I'll just write one. Yay, open access. Hooray for open access, because then we can share the actual paper with you. And this one's pretty cool, actually. I like the way that they organize their papers there. Well done. So, hey, back in episode 41, we talked about whale evolution. We did. And Will taught us all about mysticetes, which are the baleen whales. Early baleen whales, before they developed their baleen and then other features that define the group today, had teeth. Yes. And there's been lots of research about what was exactly going on in the early evolution of the baleen whales, the mysticetes. This research presents a new genus and species of a stem mysticete, an early cousin of the baleen whales, named Borealodon osidax. Cool name. That's, that species name there is a spoiler for what gets exciting at the end of this news <laughs> for, bit. All, for all you Latin speakers. For all you, uh, for everybody who knows about what osidax is. <laughs> Stay tuned. It is from Washington State. It dates back to the Oligocene epoch, so not too long after whales sort of get their start the heyday of what transitional whales it's known from a partial skull from which they were able to study its teeth and its inner ear Ooh, the teeth are multi-cusped which suggests uh, and the wear on the teeth suggests hunting in the whale which makes sense and the measurements of the inner ear indicate that it had low frequency hearing which again is something that is important for baleen whales today indeed and they found that it represents a new lineage of early toothed baleen whale ancestors. Cool. Which is all really cool. Another little complication to add to the story of whale evolution. <laughs> but that's not why I chose this news article. No offense to the whale, but what caught my eye is that in the paper they described that on nearly every element, nearly every bone that they found of this fossil whale, they saw 
very, very tiny, like under 0.1 millimeters across, circular boreholes. And the boreholes are what we see. Those kinds of boreholes are similar to what we see left behind by Osadax boneworms. Nice! So if any of you are familiar with whale falls, <laughs> which we must have talked about whale falls, yes, right? We have yes. to have talked about whale falls. When whales die, they fall down to the bottom of the ocean and they become this smorgasbord of food and stuff. An oasis in the desert at the bottom of the sea. Whale falls go through a series of stages in the modern day oceans. And the last stage, they are assaulted by armies of bone worms. And the worms drill into the bone and break it down. Yeah. That's how they make their living. This is the first time a identified whale, so like has a species identification to it, has been found with bone worm holes in it. That's so cool. And they were also able to see that the outer surface of the bone, the cortical bone, has those holes. The internal structure, the cancellous bone, the spongy stuff, was severely damaged. <laughs> so much so that it left the bones structurally unstable. Which was probably because the bone worms were in there eating it yeah, messing the whole thing up. Which is a really cool little case study for how those bone worms are affecting the fossil record. Yes. And they also found a little tiny bivalve associated with one of the skull bones, which is similar to bivalves today that hang out around whale falls. Cool. It's a tradition that has been going on for a very long time. They also, uh, there was r- reports of nearby shark teeth, although no direct evidence of scavenging. But all this together suggests that they had a, what is called a chemosymbiotic bivalve and worms, which are characteristic of what is called the sulfophilic stage of a whale fall community. The last stage where they're, you know, utilizing the sulfur and stuff that comes out of, that you can extract from these bones. Mm-hmm. Which makes this a likely fossilized whale fall specimen. That's awesome. Which is not the first time. Yes. There are lots of fossil whales out there that look like they were involved in, that they went through the stages of a, of a classic whale fall community. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating to me is hearing, uh, we can track how whale falls have changed over time through the fossil record. My favorite example of this, and I don't remember if I've mentioned this before, I probably have, there is a report, at least a couple reports, of Mesozoic marine reptile falls. Yes. And the evidence suggests they did not go through all the same stages because those bone worms hadn't evolved yet. That's awesome. It's so cool. I, like, whale falls are awesome just by themselves. Yeah. If any of you have not seen a documentary that covers a whale fall, please go look it up on YouTube because it's amazing. But the fact that we can actually you know, track the progression of how the modern whale fall has evolved is really neat. It's just so cool. It's a little, a very specific little micro ecosystem. Yeah, an, an ephemeral, occasional, disperse micro ecosystem. Like, it yeah. shows up every now and then. Mm-hmm. And then they're just there. Like, I'm pretty sure those bone worms, at least some of the animals in whale falls, are not seen anywhere else. Yeah. They are somewhere across the ocean, and they just disperse until they find a whale. Well, and it's, it's a situation where just going by the numbers of whales, or, well, I mean, uh, numbers of whales a few decades ago, maybe. Yeah. Um, but the numbers of whales that are in the ocean, there's probably a whale fall going on 
at all times somewhere. Well, and they last for a long time. So, yeah. But they are not centrally located. There's no way to be like, oh, this is the right environment for... Nope. Did the whale die here? Because that's the only right environment. It could be anywhere. Presumably, you have a lot, a lot of little boneworm babies. Mm -hmm. And you shoot them out in all directions and hope. Yep. And it's that's so cool. It's something that's been going on since whales have been out there, but it's it's these uh, uh, just momentary blips on the radar yep. of when they show up, and that's awesome. Well, speaking of amazing things, you know what's a real cool fossil site that I got to visit recently? What? The La Brea Tar Pits. Yeah. Stay tuned. The La Brea Tar Pits are located in Los Angeles, within the city. Yes. One of the biggest cities in North America, within Los Angeles. They are super famous. They are known, as we've mentioned, as the La Brea Tar Pits. But we're going to talk about that because what they're finding these fossils in is not really tar and they're not really pits. (laughs) Stay tuned for that. But first, let's go back. Let's take a journey through geologic time. During the Miocene epoch, Several million years ago, Los Angeles, the space where Los Angeles is now, was a deep marine basin. Yes. Covered in water deep enough to create, presumably, oxygen-poor conditions down at the bottom. Yes. And when you have deep marine basins like that, you tend to accumulate microorganisms on the sea floor. Mm-hmm. So all your plankton, your diatoms, your foram, all that kind of stuff that's floating around falls down to the seafloor and accumulates in mud and layers and layers, which creates very organic rich sediments, very carbon rich layers down below. As time went on and the nearby mountains eroded sediment into the basin, those organic rich sediments became covered up. Over time, ultimately, the water would eventually disappear, Mm -hmm. and compressed by all that overlying sediment, that that accumulation of carbon-rich remains became a natural reservoir of oil and natural gas. Yep. Specifically, the one we're going to be talking about is the Salt Lake Oil Field, which is oil sands interbedded with shales and sandstones from different depositional periods okay today all that is buried deep underground deep under all the rock layers that have been placed down on top of it which means that all that natural carbonaceous stuff all that oil and gas is under pressure lots of overlying pressure so if you get cracks and fissures in the earth like if you're in a part of the world that has earthquakes all the time even if i've been there for like three weeks total and never felt one yeah, California's holding out on me. They say. They say. Uh, yeah, is who believes those people? If a crack or fissure or fault or combination of them manages to connect this reservoir to the surface, the oil and natural gas will begin to rise. Yeah. To seep. They are called seeps. So you get this oil moving upward, and if it reaches the surface, it comes out, and it spreads across the ground. The more unstable materials, the more unstable substances within the oil evaporate away, and what you're left with is this viscous, sticky, slow-moving black substance 
more accurately called asphalt. Yes. Tar, from what I've read, is usually reserved for goopy stuff. More fluid material. Very similar. But this very slow, sticky stuff is generally called asphalt. Or bitumen. Oh. At Rancho La Brea, most of the upwelling, the seeping of this asphalt began happening between 100,000 and 50,000 years ago. So, late Pleistocene. Long after, millions of years after those layers were deposited, they are coming up to the surface. Nice. And indeed, they're still coming up today. Ooh. That area is an area of active asphalt seeping. New asphalt seeps form all the time. Seeps, creeps. Seeps, creeps. In fact, after earthquakes, they'll sometimes change... Their positions. Wow. <laughs> That's terrifying. So the folks at La Brea were telling me when I was over there that, like, they're always keeping an ear out for, like... And while we were there, they were like, yeah, there was a new one that just started in some building down the street. Oh, like, God. Yeah, no, this is a place where asphalt's just coming out of the ground. Yeah. And it has been for over 50,000 years. Now, before we continue, I want to address the term tar pits. The classic image of a tar pit is basically like quicksand. Yeah. Like when you see it in movies and stuff, you, you we picture it like black, gooey well, quicksand. Yeah, this is giant pool, this giant, like a pond of just bubbling tar and goo and yeah. all that stuff. In the movie Ice Age, there was the, the joke with the little, I, I thought they were Moraritherium or something. Yeah. It didn't belong there. They, they were like... Trapped, stuck in this pool of They're tar. They're playing extinction. Playing extinction, yep. But that's not really what it is most of the time. Because this asphalt will kind of seep up and spread out in a thin layer away from the original seep. So a lot of the time what you're really getting is this thin layer of molasses-like thick asphalt. That's maybe centimeters thick. Mm-hmm. It's not a pool. It's not... So when things get trapped in it, and they do... It's not that you're getting trapped, like you're not falling into a pool. Yeah. Papers that I read described it more like flypaper. Oh, okay. It's not that you stepped and your your mammoth's legs sank six feet into this pool and now I can't get out. It's I stepped and now I can't pick my foot back up. Yeah. Because this is all sticky asphalt. So the image of animals walking over it, it's... Actually, you know, because I always used to hear it's like, oh, it's a pool. And I'm like, well, those stupid animals, like, yeah, don't go in the pool. Well, that, like that always used to confuse me when it was portrayed that way, because and I will talk about this in more detail. But the whole idea is that one animal gets stuck and another comes to eat that animal. It gets stuck and so on and so yep, yep. on. And there's always that part. Where it's like, how are they expecting to get to the animal that's stuck if it's in this pool of stuff. Right, are you swimming over to it? Yeah. That like, doesn't make any sense. It, it's And it seems like if you were, you'd be getting stuck on the edge, and you'd just be able to eat the animal. I, yeah. Yeah, it was very confusing. But it, think of it like flypaper. Yes, which makes much more sense. An animal, so this, when it's active, late ice age, so a mammoth, a ground sloth, a horse, a tapir, walks out onto it, and especially because... Dirt and sediment and leaves and stuff are going to be falling on this. It's just going to look like the ground sometimes. Yeah, just maybe a little weird. They step on it, they're stuck, and then they just can't move and they starve. Mm -hmm. And they die. And now other things are going to come in. So like you just said, La Brea is famously 
the fossil accumulation is evidence of a predator trap. Which is such a cool term. So the fossils that are accumulated there, right, these layers of asphalt would have built up over thousands of years, just like most things that are deposited. It's not a pool that hardened, it's layer after layer of seeping asphalt. It accumulates fossils by trapping animals in it. From little bugs that land in it and can't get out to mammoths that you stepped in it. And yes, I'm very strong, but I'm also like six tons and now I'm not moving. And the other danger of flypaper is struggling. Yes. If if anyone's ever tried to walk through really goopy mud, if you step in one and you try to push, pull your foot out by pressing down with the other foot, your other foot goes down. And all you're doing now is sinking further into the mud. If you go to pull that foot out by pushing with another foot, now two feet are stuck. Yep. Now all it takes is one little trip for now an elbow to be stuck down. And then you're you're done. You have no leverage. And as we, we, will, we will discuss a bit later, La Brea has an overabundance of predator fossils. Because like you said, a thing gets stuck, is struggling in the goop or dies and is sitting there and just looks like it's dead on the ground and now predator you know a wolf a cat comes along and goes oh look a dead thing food time and they walk over and now they're stuck in fact one of the papers that i saw or one of the uh, the sources i read said that by looking at insects preserved alongside fossil remains they can get a sense of how long (laughs) how many stages of decay the animal went through while laying there yeah and there's indications that, in some cases, large animals could have been laying on the surface for months. Yeah. Right? They're not sinking. They're just laying there. And anything that comes along is going to go, oh, my goodness, look. Look, there's a mammoth and, like, 17 dead wolves. This is great. Yes. <laughs> Finally, things are going right for me. <laughs> yeah. I think I'll stick around. So, for thousands of years, this this area of asphalt seeps is building up asphalt, collecting, trapping organisms, and creating this these big deposits of fossil-rich, ancient Pleistocene, late Ice Age asphalt. Today, that area is Los Angeles. Yes. In fact, it is a... All, most of the, the famous tar pits are within a 23-acre area at Hancock Park on Wilshire Boulevard, actual downtown LA. Like, I, it was really funny... When we took, at NAPC, I took a field trip out there. Mm -hmm. And I have been to many fossil sites. And usually the trip to a fossil site is like a couple of hours driving across the desert or driving up a mountain. This is the first time I have ever had to sit in traffic (laughs) to get to the fossil site. Yeah. It was an hour and a half in Los Angeles traffic. And then we were at the fossil site. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's such a weird place. Oh, it's 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 completely <laughs> in the wrong spot. You know, it's obviously not meant to be there. <laughs> Most of the deposits at La Brea are within the top, you know, several meters, 30, 40 feet of sediment. Underneath that, you're back in the ancient ocean sediments. But because this stuff is building up layer by layer over time, you're preserving this sequence from bottom to top across the late Pleistocene collecting animals as you go. We'll talk about exactly what kind of animals and plants and microbes in a little bit. Like I said, the seeps are still active today. One of the reasons that we can say so assuredly how creatures and plants get stuck in it is that it's still happening. Yeah. So the people, again, I was talking to the folks at La Brea and they were saying that 
yeah, every now and then we will see like a bird or a squirrel that got stuck in the asphalt, and that's just where they are now. Yep. And that's and they're now they're dead, and they will become part of the deposit in the future. These days, there's also like soccer balls. Oh yeah, our Uber driver lost a shoe. Yeah, that's right. Our Uber <laughs> driver said he lost a shoe <laughs> because it's in a park now, and, and people are just walking around. Yep. Although the, the the actual seeps are usually walled off. Yes. <laughs> like, you're not supposed to walk into them. More deposits are also found all the time, especially with construction that's going on. So we'll talk a little bit later. I'll mention uh, one of the big projects they're doing now is is called Project 23, which is this huge endeavor that got started because the next door uh, Museum of Art was excavating the foundation for a big parking structure. Mm. And... And the way that Sean put it, Sean, who I talked to at La Brea, who you will hear on the bonus audio, if you dig around here, you're going to hit asphalt. Yeah. You're going to find fossil-filled asphalt. And indeed they did. So they started pulling asphalt out to look for fossils. So it is very much an active fossil site. Super rich. Researchers come in from all over the world. Just tons of specimens come out of this site. But we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thousands of years, these asphalt seeps stuck around, and toward the end of those thousands of years, humans showed up. Yeah. Rancho La Brea has a long history of human interaction with these pits, with these deposits, these asphalt deposits. It's known that the asphalt seeps were used by Native Americans for th- for glue and caulk, for yeah, yeah. building and fixing tools and stuff like that. Later on, when uh, settlers moved in, they were known to use it for roofing materials, mm-hmm. for, you know, construction material. It's it's a source of, that's a resource. Oh, it's, it's a natural glue. Yeah. Ultimately, by the 1870s, the land became, uh, fell under the ownership of the Hancock family, which is where the name of the park comes from. And they used the area for mining asphalt and drilling for oil. Okay. So for a long time, the tar pits area was treated as a natural resource. All sorts of different peoples, from prehistoric peoples to modern peoples, were using it for that purpose. For a long time, people knew it would trap animals. Presumably they saw it happening. It was documented at least back into the 1700s. Mm-hmm. Surely, you know, it only took one person to oh. step in it and then tell everybody else. Oh, I mean, it's you know it's only a matter of time before pets and things like that yep. get stuck and people go find them. Yep, someone says that they lost a shoe. (laughs) But the first scientific documentation of fossils in the deposit was not until 1875. Which sounds weird, but, you know, listen back to our history, like our episode 56 about the evolution of evolutionary thought. Mm -hmm. We didn't really come around to extinction until not super long before that time. The report was by William Denton, and it was published by the Boston Society of Natural History. And it was the first time someone had said, hey, so in this asphalt, in these deposits, there's tons of bones, Mm -hmm. tons of ancient bones. So that piqued people's interest in digging. In the early 1900s, excavations began in earnest. Early excavations were carried out by the University of California at Berkeley, the Southern California Academy of Sciences, and others, starting around 1906. So this is a time period to put this into perspective. Paleontology had reached the United States and North America by that time in earnest, right? 
all the Bone Wars stuff that we yeah. talked about in episode 58 had already happened. So this is a time still sort of in the early days of paleontology. Uh, I believe, if I remember correctly, at that time, there were not really dinosaurs on display at museums yet. Yeah. Uh, this actually, 1906 is the year after T-Rex was first found, <laughs> or at least first named. Notable early excavation projects included a an endeavor by a school teacher named James Z. Gilbert in 1909, who got a lot of students involved digging on the uh, in the deposits. So that's something that hasn't really changed. Nice. And the collections that they amassed became some of the first specimens in the Los Angeles County Museum, which back then was science and art, and all different topics rolled into one, yes. which has since expanded. The museum opened in 1913, and they started launching their own excavations, including, very famously, excavations right off the bat in 96 different quarries. Wow of de asphalt deposits, which they called pits, uh, like we do at Gray. That, there you go. Each area was a is a pit. Many of these pits are still visible today. They very cleverly named them Pits 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and so on. One of the most famous pits is Pit 91. More of that in a second. Early excavations at La Brea are full of, like, classic early paleontology types of anecdotes. Mm-hmm. They were not doing a great job. <laughs> like, there was lots of flooding and there were lots of cave-ins because this was still relatively early on in yeah. our understanding of how to dig for stuff. We were learning. They used to scrub the bones. So these bones are black or brown, right? They're coming out of the asphalt. They're still covered in this sticky asphalt stuff. When I was there, they were describing how they'll prep the bones and sometimes you'll you know, crack open a little concretion and oil will come out. Yeah. Like, it's still sticky, it's still fluid, it's still asphalt. Mm -hmm. And it's just such a weird thing to have to work with. Yeah. And there have been all sorts of ways that people have tried over the years to, okay, how do we get this stuff off the bone? Because it's, and how often do we want to? Because mm -hmm. there were, I, I was talking with some of the preparators about how sometimes you don't want to get it off the bone because that's what's preserving the bone. Yes. So it's this real weird substance to have to work with. Famously, one of the first attempts that the early excavators tried was scrubbing the bones with heated kerosene. And so there's all sorts of great stories about their, their kerosene lighting on fire. Yep. <laughs> And That's what it does. Sean Campbell, when he was giving his talk at, at the fossil site uh, several weeks ago, told a story about how sometimes they'd have these fires going, you know, to, to I think, to keep the kerosene heated or whatever they needed fires for. And when you needed to refresh the fire, you need more fuel. And the, I mean, the asphalt, that's what it is, right? That that's That stuff will burn. Yeah. So they just like throw fossils <laughs> onto the fire. <laughs> Ow. So it wasn't like a great time. But they did find tons of stuff. Back in those early excavations, they identified around 300 species wow. of plants and animals. They were mostly focused back then on megafauna. Yeah. Mammoths, mastodons, saber-toothed cats, horses, bison, you know, the big exciting things. Which is the case with most fossil sites. Most of the time, like, early fossil excavations were all about big stuff. Yeah, big and exciting. The deposit also became the type locality, the reference locality, 
for the Rancho Librean land mammal age. Yeah. So this is something I don't think we've talked a lot about on the podcast, but whenever we talk about geologic ages, we're using the you know periods, epochs, eras, eons, the Cretaceous period of the Mesozoic era of the Phanerozoic eon. But different parts of the world also have specific timescales that go along with them. Here in North America, we have NALMAs, North American Land Mammal Ages, mm-hmm. which are based on what mammals were present at different times. So the Gray Fossil Site, for example, is very, it hovers around the end of what's called the Hempelian yeah. Land Mammal Age. So we, oftentimes in the literature, people are talking about the Hempelian Land Mammal Age even more so than Miocene-Pliocene. Because they, they're specifically working or referencing just that little section. So yes. Zooming out is actually less useful. And one of the latest Nalmas, Land Mammal Ages, is called the Rancho Labreum. And it's named after this site. Which is cool. That, that's, that's fun. Early research was performed by now famous names like Chester Stock, which is a name that shows up a whole bunch if you start looking into La Brea research. Hildegard Howard was a pioneer paleoornithologist. In fact, I saw, it might have been on their website where they identified her as the first dedicated paleoornithologist. Cool. Studying fossil birds. Because, as we will discuss later, La Brea is loaded with birds which makes so much sense so many birds more recently in the 60s more modern excavations got kicked off specifically of note excavations in pit 91 pit 91 pit 91 is pretty excited about that one (laughs) pit 91 is exciting because it's still open today nice you can go up you can see they're still excavating in it Excavation started back in 1969, which means this is a pit that has been excavated for 50 years. Wow. And when they reopened it, when they started up again in the 60s into the 70s, they were being much more meticulous. They started documenting the position of fossils. They were gritting out their deposits like we do at Gray, Mm -hmm. like a lot of fossil sites do. And they specifically started looking for micro-material. Aha! Sifting and screening for the smallest fossil remains. Out, you know, my favorite stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and they started finding plant seeds and stuff, and insects, and mollusks, and, you know, snakes and frogs, and all sorts of little things. Excavations in Pit 91 doubled the number of known species from La Brea. Awesome. These days they are beyond 600 species known at the site. That's really cool. If you go by La Brea today, so these days, uh, La Brea has sort of shifted hands over the years. For a while, it was part of the Page Museum. So if you were there, you know, several years ago, it would have been the Page Museum. Now the name has changed. They are the La Brea Tarpits Museum. Nice. Or I think it's the La Brea Tarpits End Museum. And they're affiliated or, or part of, I think they're part of the Los Angeles County Museum of Natural History. So it's kind of shifted around, but when you walk in, there are big signs that say La Brea Tarpits and Museum, and there are these awesome saber-toothed cat statues, and then the building has this beautiful carved mural on it, and you're in a park, and you can walk all around the park where there are asphalt seeps. That's cool. And in some of them, people are digging. (laughs) So when I was there over this summer, I got to peek in where Sean and Laura, who are names you will hear 
in the next little bonus. Not our, not Sean and Laura. Say, I was going to say. <laughs> not like the Sean and Laura. Not the great fossil, fossil site. site Sean and Laura. The La Brea Tarpet. The La Brea Sean. Tarpet Sean It's like that episode of Recess <laughs> where all the kids are just the same at the other school. It's like that. Yeah. Their Sean is not at all like our Sean. <laughs> our Sean is very unique. <laughs> Their Laura is a little bit like our Laura. They're both delightful people. <laughs> so they were doing, they were working on Project 23, which meant that they were excavating out of boxes. More on that later. But you walk in and it's on the, the you look through this gate and there's people sitting in this pit of dark, goopy asphalt digging and you can see the bones on the surface, all black and bone shaped. And then behind you, there's like kids running around, kicking soccer balls and, and climbing on the giant ground sloth statues. Nah. It's such a weird place (laughs) it's really cool that's so cool it's really cool hancock park the the land was deeded by the hancock family to the museum back in the 20s the 1920s so now it's you know all under the the excavations are all run by the museum researchers come in from all over the world to study these fossil deposits it's just an incredibly unique locality neat inside the museum there are there's a prep lab. There are collections. Oh my goodness, the collections. <laughs> and all these displays. So it's it's a like the Gray Fossil Site, not to keep mentioning the Gray Fossil Site, but like the Gray Fossil Site, it's the museum's on site. You can see where they dig, you can see where they work on the fossils. It's just that they've been doing it for more than a century. Yep. So the, it's it's just this incredible like there's a history to the museum itself. Yeah, like a notable, long-lasting, you know, we're, we are still creating ours. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and being so rich, being the source of so many famous finds, being in the center of Los Angeles, it's become very, very famous. Yes. So like you said, it's shown up in movies. Oh, yes. Usually badly. Oh, yeah. No, I think the first time I ever learned about the Liberty Tarpets was in... Uh, shout out if anyone knows it, Denver the Dancing Dinosaur. <laughs> I don't uh, even know that one. Yeah, it's a weird animated movie, but I loved it where uh, Denver's egg is found at the La Brea Tar Pits. Yeah, so, you know, dinosaur Yeah, egg. of course, dinosaurs. Uh, and it hatches because <laughs> the, the asphalt had protected it and it had stayed viable. <laughs> so, yeah, not a great representation, but still, I remember that it was La Brea Tar Pits. The first movie that always comes to my mind is Volcano. Yep. Volcano. With, uh, Tommy Lee Jones, where they have lava coming out of the tar pits. Yeah. Because... <laughs> I do like the way they show it initially starting because it's heat. It's supposed to be heating up the tar pits and one of the um, mammoth sculptures sinks yes. into the further into the site. <laughs> there is a, uh, a, a display there with this, this lake mm-hmm. that is a humans put this lake here like the city put this lake as part of the park and there's this sculpture of this elephant like trapped in the lake and sinking while it's mate and child look on forlornly Mm because thanks (laughs) which really does just contribute to this image no that was something i was (laughs) going to bring up when we were talking earlier is you know that that initial image is so ubiquitous but yet there are sculptures that show exactly what is always described. Yeah, I think they're taking them down. Yeah. I think there's plans to, to remove those and, and maybe put up better stuff. I I'm hope. sure people are upset. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, But it's cool because when you find the actual seeps, 
there are like you can watch them bubble. Yeah, that's. Yeah. I think the lake menacing. has bubbles too, and I don't remember if that's because there's actual like seeps underneath the lake. So yeah, but no, like it's active. Yeah. So it's just bubble. such a fat. Geologically, it's fascinating. Historically, it's fascinating. Paleontologically, it's fascinating. Just a cool place. Yes. But the best part about it is what they find there. Yeah. Which we will discuss after the break. The La Brea Tar Pits are possibly the world's best source of information for ecosystems and environments at the end of the Pleistocene epoch. Most of the deposits at La Brea range from 10,000 years at the youngest to around 40 or 50,000 years at the oldest. There might be some that are a bit older, there might be some that are a bit younger, but most of it's falling in that 10 to 40 range. Which is a pretty tight little range. It is, but very informative. Yes. Because not only does it stretch across the end of the Pleistocene, it covers the last glacial maximum and the time periods before and after the last ex- full extent of the Wisconsin and glaciation. Nice. It also covers the end Pleistocene megafaunal extinctions. That's Which handy. we discussed in episode 25. So it's this, it's this wonderful sequence where you can look across the end of the Pleistocene. As the climate shifted, as the environment shifted, as extinction happened, it's real handy. Yeah. The plants of Rancho La Brea track a changing environment in the nearby area, so there are plants associated with a handful of different modern ecosystems, including, for you biome nuts, sagebrush scrub, riparian woodland, which is to say, you know, woodland that grows alongside streams, chaparral vegetation, and mixed evergreen redwood forest. Cool. So a handful of different environments, all pretty much similar to what we see there today. Yes. And there's been a lot of comparisons to what is there today. So so around, there was a, a note that I saw that was like thirty to 40,000 years ago, the climate and environment was pretty similar to what you would see today in California, 300 miles north. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. The plants also indicate the climate in the past, suggesting, uh, at least oftentimes, that it was similar to today, a little wetter, a little cooler, which okay. again, ice age. Yep. There's evidence for greater seasonality at some times in the past. So where you'd get rainfall, basically you had a wet and dry season more intensely than you would see in the modern day world. So California did get rain at one point. It did. It used to get rain, but only in the winters. All right. At least mostly in the winters. <laughs> and it's all it's all rained out. Yeah. All the California clouds are empty now. It went strong too soon. <laughs> but of course, we're tracking this. It gets warm. It gets cool. It gets warm. And so you're seeing all this fascinating environmental change. Mostly similar to today, right? A little bit temperatures difference, but the the actual environments are going to be very similar to what we have today. This was only several thousand years ago. Yes. Well, tens of thousands. The early, the latest deposits, typically around 10,000, is also around the time that humans start spreading around the world. Humans show up. Well, humans, modern humans, like civilizations start spreading around the world. Yes, 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 yes. Humans have already shown up in North America. The Pleistocene ends and megafauna go extinct. So this brings us right up to that edge. All of this information comes out of the plants and animals that have been amassed in the collections at La Brea. 
I got to walk through these collections. <laughs> My goodness. Just drawers on drawers on, like, it's, we walked down, Dr. Emily Lindsay walked us down this narrow path in between two big, long, long shelves with just boxes of specimens, the fossils of these, like I said, beautiful brown-black fossils. And we walked, and I looked to my side, and the boxes said, saber-tooth cats. And we walked, and we walked, and we walked, and I looked to the side, and the boxes said, saber-tooth cats. <laughs> and we kept walking. It's like, when does it end? <laughs> and then we turned a corner, and it was elephants all the way down. There are around 650 species identified at the La Brea Tar Pits, which is a crazy number. Yes. For comparison, at Gray, we have about 200. Which is? Which is already ridiculous. That's a chunk. Like, that's a huge amount. A couple weeks ago, at the Gray Fossil Site, we cataloged our 27,000th specimen at the Gray Fossil Site. 27,000. 27. What a, what a number. As I Can you even imagine a number bigger than that? I can't. But on my notes here, I have one. <laughs> The last census of the La Brea collections was in 1992, so it's a little out of date, and they counted 3.5 million specimens. Well, okay. (laughs) 3.5, it's just so... Because you've been digging for 100 years in one of the best fossil sites in the world. Absolutely. And there's constant excavation. There has not been much time throughout that history where you weren't having some level of excavation. Mm -hmm. It's just, you could get lost in these collections and only ever see bison for the rest of your life. (laughs) Well, and you have such easy access. You know, we, we have easy access with Gray, you know, being in a little town and in the backyard of the museum, but they are in downtown. Yeah. You have constant, uh, attention and access. And probably, uh, and I don't actually know this, I don't want to presume, but I would think a decent stream of funding and support because it's a big tourist attraction. Yes. It's like a, it's sort of a local pride Mm -hmm. thing. So yeah, they're they're just so fortunate. Most of the species they have identified at the Gray Fossil Site, about 90% are still living species. Cool. Which you don't often think of in a fossil site. Mm -hmm. Oh, extinct things. No, most of this is modern animals just in different places, different climate. Yeah, modern animals have been leaving fossils just as well as everything else that's extinct. Yep. So they find the remains of coyotes, mountain lions, brown bears, black bears, bats and shrews and raccoons, foxes, bobcats, jaguars. Nice. Tapers, snakes and fish and amphibians and all sorts of... Most of this is just familiar stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. To go into some more detail. Just to throw out some numbers to brag on the La Brea folks, around 60 species of mammals have been identified from the La Brea tar pits, including a lot of Ice Age megafauna. So in addition to the stuff that we still have today, they have mammoths and mastodons, giant ground sloths, lots of bison of a couple different species, camels and llamas, like lots of big animals, a lot of extinct big animals. Yeah. Like I said before... Birds. There are about 140 species of birds identified at La Brea, of which only about 20 are extinct. Again, mostly modern. The bird collection I found cited at about 250,000 specimens of just birds. Wow! Reptiles, they have turtles, 
They have several species of lizards. They have about a dozen or so species of snakes. Woohoo. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I think it was their website that I read that said the most common snake is the garter snake, Thamnophis. Oh, okay, there you go. Which is interesting because that is probably also the most common snake at Grey. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. But then again, they're everywhere. They're yeah. very common today. Garter too. snakes are pretty successful. <laughs> yeah, they're doing a good job. <laughs> it's those meat and balls. They have frogs and salamanders in the tar pits. They have fish. And there are tons of invertebrates. Clams and snails and scorpions and spiders, millipedes, around 25 different families of insects. So just all oh, so dragonflies and beetles and, and more and more and more. Oh, that's, that, that is awesome. It's pretty cool. And the tar is, the tar, oh, I see what I did. The asphalt. Mm-hmm. You see, oh, they got me. The asphalt is great at preserving that, preserving this, this fine detail in these tiny organisms. Yeah. Speaking of fine detail and tiny organisms, plants. Woo! Great fossil record of plants at La Brea. More than 150 species, represented by wood and leaves and seeds and pollen. That makes sense. Which is just this, it's it's a whole ecosystem. We talked in the Gray Fossil Site episode that it's so rare to get a whole ecosystem represented at a fossil site. La Brea gives you a whole ecosystem. Yeah. And it's just, and they all died horribly tragic deaths. <laughs> I have, I have long said that the best paleontology is yielded from past tragedy. Yeah, the more tragic, the better the paleontology. Like at Gray, and I keep comparing Gray to La Brea, and I, I, I want to make a point. Yes, because for a long time I was always like, I feel a little guilty. Yeah, comparing Gray to La Brea, like I'm, I'm trying to ride the coattails. Yes, I was like, oh no, we're like them too. When I, when we were there, the the one of the people who was giving us a tour, and I, I don't remember who it was that said this. I wish that I did. I heard uh, we were talking to them, said that when people ask them if there are other fossil sites similar to La Brea, they mention us. Yeah. And that's like getting a reply to your tweet from Simpai like Mark Hamill. Me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> Simpai noticed me. Yes. So yes, we, we have been noticed. <laughs> and and that's what I tell people all the time when they, they, you know, other fossil sites come up or people ask about like, well, are people, you know, making a big deal about this? Because this seems like, you know, when they're at Gray, I'm like, well, I'm sure down the line, La Brea has a, a, a similarly awesome deposit, but they've been there for a very long time. So when yeah. we catch up, we can be their other coast cousin. Yes. Uh, so hopefully Give us 100 someday. years. Yes. Yeah. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> we got to start eating right. <laughs> and it's not just how many species and how many specimens. It's just the sheer volume of representation of animals and plants at the site. The most common large herbivore at La Brea is bison antiquus, which is an extinct bison. There are at least 300 individuals wow identify like mni so we've talked i think we've talked before about minimum number of individuals yes that is if you found 300 left femora yeah or right tibiae you have at least 300 of this thing. you can confirm those all came from different animals unless you had a six-limbed bison yes <laughs> so they have have classified over 300 by now for comparison at gray we brag about our tapers oh yeah which the number that i have gotten the curators to agree on is at least 100 to 150 yes labre has got three times that in bison 
and that's nothing. <laughs> if you get the most obnoxious display at yeah. the La Brea Museum, and by obnoxious, I mean it's so cool. It's amazing. I'm but so it's, jealous. It's, <laughs> it is very, very unfair. Just, I, I think it was around the corner, or maybe it was down the hall from the, the where you look into the prep lab. There is a wall with 400 dire wolf skulls. <laughs> Not 400, 400 skulls. I asked while I was there how many dire wolf individuals they have, and the number I was given, if I remember correctly, was around 4,000 individual dire wolves. That's a big pack. Yeah, it was, it was a herd. It was a herd of dire wolves. <laughs> the dire wolf migration. They are the most common. I want to say, I, I've heard, you know, most common large animal. I don't know if I would go so far as to say they are the most common animal because you've got snails and clams and stuff. Yeah. But definitely the most common mammal. Yeah. Definitely the most common large animal. And sh- shortly behind them, at, if I remember right, I was told like 3,000 is Smilodon. <laughs> Saber tooth cats. That must be, I think I said this, I wish I was taking notes while I was talking to people more often. I think I said that's gotta be more Smilodon than have been found anywhere else combined. Yeah. That's insane. Thousands of these. Do you remember earlier when we talked about it being a predator trap? Yes. (laughs) It was really good at it. You're getting ahead of me. (laughs) The third most common, notice this trend, are coyotes. Which I did not get a number for. And I saw it noted in an article that I read that even the animals that are present in relatively low abundance are still impressive. Yeah. For example, only about 1% of the remains at Rancho La Brea are Arctotus, the giant short-faced bear. They do have giant short-faced bears. 1%, I don't remember what the 1% meant. That might maybe 1% of mammals. I don't know what it was. But a small percent are Arctotus. And it's still the best Arctotus site in the world. <laughs> ha! It's showing off. It's, it's, oh. And at this point, you may have noticed the trend that Will just pointed out. There are way too many carnivores. Yes. Way too many. If you think of an ecosystem today, herbivores always will outnumber your car. I think of Africa. There are hundreds yeah. of zebras and antelope and wildebeests and a handful of lions and leopards and stuff. Oh, absolutely. Because it needs to be. If your predators ever outnumber your herbivores, your ecosystem collapses and both of those groups die. Yeah, you're going to have a bad time. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. And a lot of fossil sites reflect that, mm-hmm. right? Gray reflects that. A lot of sites, it's, yeah, we have carnivores, but they're rare. At La Brea, there is a 9 to 1 ratio of predators to prey. Wow. 9 to 1. And this has been explained by what you just pointed out. It's a predator trap. Yeah, California was terrifying. <laughs> this is just dire wolves coming out of the wall. Up to your knees. <laughs> Up to your in dire wolf skulls. <laughs> it was like that scene in, in, in what was it? Man of, Man of Steel. Where he's sinking, sinking through the human <laughs> <in> the skulls. <laughs> this is dire wolf skulls and mammoths were sinking in them. No, because like we said before, giant ground sloth steps on the asphalt is trapped and scared and lets out pathetic prey noises. Yep. And predators come in to get it. Or delicious prey smells. And then it dies, and now it's a carcass, and predators come in to get it. And so you would just continuously get these predator accumulations. Which means a really interesting scenario where, once again, to compare to Gray, <laughs> things are falling into the water and dying there, or dying and falling into the water. So it's just like, oops. 
Right, right, right. Yeah. You lived here, you died here. And every and now and then that. one of you slips in or drowned and now you're in the water. But here it's the prey, the herbivores, are completely accidentally stumbling upon. Yes. It is a, they, there was no reason for them to be there other than they happened to be walking that way that day and got stuck the predators are being literally drawn there yes like a like a dark viscous anglerfish yes <laughs> the asphalt seeps dr- lure the car they're literally luring it, the carnivores it's trapping its own bait yeah and then trapping and the thing that's really crazy is for every predator that gets stuck that's a now another piece of bait Yes. Because predators aren't going to turn their nose up another another carcass. Meat is meat. And you're getting tons of insects. Yep. Swarming around these bodies. And insect doesn't know that if it lands, that's it. Nope. And plants, like any leaf that lands on there, Mm -hmm. is now stuck. And it's just this incredible sight. It's 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 very rare that you get sights that were... The cause of your animal's death. Yes. <laughs> Which is this? It's well, such a weird, uh, unique trait. It's weird that, and I, I, I read this, it described this way, the sediment that preserved the fossils was also the collecting agent. Yeah. The, the thing that preserved the fossils also got the, fo- like yeah. captured the, the specimens. Like the only other version of that is going to be like amber and yep, things yep. like that, that other viscous oozy things yeah and that's that's it's like you're excavating through the blob yes <laughs> it's just a big gelatinous cube yes and you're just digging through it. and that's so cool because <laughs> in so many other you know that that's one of the common questions about a lot of fossil sites is well then why were these animals here right and it's actually really hard to explain in sites where it was just an ecosystem yeah. That, no, nothing happened. They just, this this was the accumulation of things that happened to die nearby. It's that circle of life we all learned about in Lion King. Things die. Yep. Every now and then, they got, they got fossilized, and they were just, there was just a bunch of them living here, so a lot of them fossilized. Yep. Here, there's a very clear answer. Why are all these here? Because this place murdered them. Yeah. This place <laughs> was terrible. <laughs> and it's... they rolled poorly on their perception check. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and their dm was mean yeah and it's they're playing uh three and yeah, <laughs> yeah it's it is a very unique uh way to have to look at your fossils too because it means you were definitely not getting a, a the same kind of view oh no heavily biased exactly like we talk about bias in the fossil record this is as biased as you can imagine a site like this getting which uh that's there's so many unique things about the site that just make it stand out on top of its amazing collection. Here's one more. <laughs> there is one human individual uh, found. I was going to ask. At La Brea. Uh, she was called La Brea Woman. <laughs> she was, uh, I think, young-ish, like 20s, 30s, if I remember right. Around 10,000 years uh, ago, they found skull, pelvis, uh, some limb elements, some ribs. Not a full skeleton. Just bits and pieces, like most of the... Even though it's trapping things, it's still partial and jumbled and broken stuff. Just like any fossil site. Most fossil sites. Just the one human, though. Right at the end of the the, 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 the sort of activity, where, or, or, or the major time period covered by most of the deposits. There have also been around, you know, somewhere around 100 artifacts identified. Oh. So cultural artifacts, 
all younger than the 10,000 years old. Mm -hmm. So within the last 10 millennia, there's no good word for 10,000s, people were around. Yeah. Leaving stuff, losing shoes and things. I was about to say, it was generations (laughs) upon generations of people going... Ew, and poking it with whatever thing they had with right. them. Yeah. And then going, oh, it got stuck. Oh, my goodness. it got st-. And everyone freaking out. And did you throw my pot into the asphalt? <laughs> so it's also an archaeological site. Nice. Which is pretty cool. Nice. One, one of the, the rare instances where those get to overlap in the yeah. same area. That's always cool. So La Brea preserves this incredible ecosystem, this wonderful history of environments. And that leads into just a bunch of really cool research. Yeah. Lots of work is ongoing at La Brea. Like I said, Pit 91 is still open and visible to the public. It's been excavated since the 19-teens, which is so cool. (laughs) Project 23, I mentioned, so this is what I got to see them working on when I was over there. During the art museum uh, parking structure construction, they came across asphalt deposits. Yes. But they couldn't, it was a salvage operation. It wasn't. You can't just dig here like we actually have to get a job done. It's usually the issue of one of the construction site uh, is also the discovery of fossils is now you have competing interests. Yes. We want to finish our job. We want the fossils. So what they did was, they, so at a lot of fossil sites, we will jacket a fossil. Yes. You'll say, oh, there's a triceratops skull. Surround all that sediment in a big plaster jacket. Pull it out. We'll deal with the sediment later. We'll yeah. dig it out later. Yeah. In, in controlled setting. They did that kind of with the asphalt. (laughs) They pulled out 23, hence the name, giant crates. They built crates around the deposits. So you'd have this like conical accumulation of asphalt in this, you know, old depression that had built up with asphalt inside of it. And that's your deposit. That's your pit. Mm -hmm. They boxed the pit. (laughs) So they just crated the entire deposit and shipped it back to the museum. They are digging in crates. Like you walk up to where they're doing project 23 stuff and it's just a big shipping crate. And then there's little steps and you walk up and you peek inside and there's people and they're digging through asphalt. (laughs) It's so weird. (laughs) You get an hour in the box. Yes. In the chokey. (laughs) So they're still excavating. You go by, you can see this stuff actively happening. Research is ongoing, and there's just so much cool stuff you can learn there. Like we said, you can study environmental change and climate change and extinction. It's a great place for studying paleobotany. Yeah. Because you get a lot of good 3D preservation of seeds and stuff. It's a really geologically interesting area. So you can study the geology of asphalt seeps and the the tectonic activity, Mm -hmm. how that affects the area archaeological evidence there's archaeologists who go there not only to study ancient history but historians like recent history of people using and mining and drilling for all this stuff there is some research that has been done there about how microbes interact with the asphalt because there are animal there there's there are microbes and i think at least one type of insect that live in it what they live in it Ew. Yeah. So that's cool. (laughs) And I think that people had mentioned that that might be useful for, you know, how you clean up oil spills. Yeah, exactly. Microbes like thriving on the asphalt. Mm -hmm. And there's all sorts of 
to research that goes on there into how to prep fossils that are preserved in asphalt. Oh, yeah, I bet. Because it's a huge pain. The way that they tend to do it uh, often is they soak it. So they'll get a bone that's covered in asphalt. They'll soak it. And for those of you who are, are curious about the solvent, and propyl bromide. Okay. And then they use water and foam to just clean the clay and sand off and stuff. So they're trying to dissolve away to sort of break down the asphalt. And then they clean it, and it's gross. Yeah. It's re- it's nasty. But it smells like it smells like tar and asphalt mm-hmm. when you go in there. It's, yeah. it's, uh, those oil-based things are, are resilient. Oh, yeah. They're, they're very tough to, you know, just do away with. Some cool research that I came across, just some little notes that highlight the kind of things you can learn. A study by Campbell and Bachensky noted that owls are particularly abundant there. Even more so than scavengers, which indicates that they were getting trapped while hunting, like the big predators, the big mammal predators were. Interesting. There was a study by Brannock et al. that looked at how dire wolves changed <laughs> over the the, sort, the 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 course of the period there, and they found that they were smaller when it was colder, and got bigger during warmer times. Weird. So their body size shifted with the climate. Oh, weird. There have been tons of really cool pathology studies from La Brea because you're preserving so many things. Statistically, you're going to get some injured individuals. Indeed. Uh, one study identified a, I think it was looking at the femur of a timber wolf that, that was injured enough that the researchers were like, they, this wolf probably wasn't using this leg. Oh, wow. This was probably a three-legged wolf. <laughs> How cool. That's awesome. One of their more famous uh, finds that they're working on these days is Zed, one of the most complete Colombian mammoths out there. It's an 80% complete Colombian mammoth. Also thought to have died from injuries after a mating scuffle, like a conflict over mates. The same volume that included a lot of these studies also had the study I referenced back in episode 53 about bacula. Yeah, we talked about this was the, the the Adam Hartstone Rose paper about direwolf bacula. Hey, if you don't remember what bacula are, those are the penis bones. Yep. In this pla- in this case, it was direwolves because skulls aren't the only thing they found four hundred of. And it was a super cool study about yeah. like how often do you get to look at a whole population of bacula for a, for a bone that is hard to find in general. Yeah, that's ridiculous. And animals that are hard to find in general. Yeah. It's so cool. And another cool bit of news. This here is is an extra bit of news from the news. (gasps) Because a study about La Brea just came out. Oh. Just just recently. So, hey, an extra bit of news. Uh, Larissa DeSantis et al. in Current Biology looked at 700 plus teeth from La Brea of both herbivores and carnivores to examine the wear on the teeth, microwear, and isotopes to interpret diet. Nice. And they used enamel, which is different from previous research that has done this on collagen. So Mm -hmm. enamel is a Mm -hmm. substance that's thought to be more reliable for isotope studies, less likely to be changed during fossilization. And they were specifically trying to ask, so where are the carnivores hunting? Yeah. Because previous research uh, indicated that all the big carnivores were hunting in the open areas. Mm Mm-hmm. But their research clearly indicated something different. That the canids, the wolves and coyotes, were hunting prey that was eating food 
that grows in more open environments. And the cats, saber-toothed American lion, which they mm-hmm. have there, cougars were hunting in the forests. Oh, that's cool. Which makes sense because cats are ambush hunters and dogs yeah. tend to be chasers. Yeah. I think it's it's so easy to, when you, when you think big cats, your brain so quickly goes to lions. Yes, which are weird big cats. Yeah, they're weird. And, yeah. and not many people understand that they're weird because they're so famous. Yes. And good movies get made about them. <laughs> uh, so they are out in the open and they're working as a group. But that's not the case with most cats. Most cats work like your house cat, just big. Yep. And so that's really cool. They also were able to look at how this pattern shifted after the megafaunal extinction. Oh. Because dire wolves disappeared. Yeah. And saber-toothed cats and American lions disappeared. After the end Pleistocene, they found that coyotes became more forest hunters <laughs> and were uh, shifting to more carcass eating. Interesting. And they suggest that it might be that their versatility was what allowed, at least in part, what allowed them to survive yeah. when other carnivores disappeared. Because they're so wily. Because they're wily. Because they had rockets and stuff. <laughs> and it's just fascinating to be able to get that level of resolution from a fossil site. That's That sort of slow progression that you're getting to see by having such a huge collection is unheard of in almost every other (laughs) category and area. It's really awesome. And I love the fact that they can do true population studies. Yes. Like a lot of times when we do population studies with other fossils, there has to be some adjustment or estimation made for the fact that you only have a small percentage. Right. And yes, you still only have a small percentage, even at La Brea. You know, you do not have all the direwolves that lived in California. Right. But you probably have a pretty decent uh, comparable collection to what it would be easy to catch, even if you were doing yes. a modern study on wolves. Like, and that study looked at 700 teeth. Yeah, exactly. Like, could you go catch 700 wolves to do a similar <laughs> study? That would not be easy. So... They actually have a really good case for doing population studies, and that's awesome. It's pretty cool. One other thing that La Brea is really cool about in terms of research is that it is not the only asphalt fossil site. Whee! There are others in California. There are others in Peru and Ecuador and Trinidad and Venezuela and Cuba and Iran and Angola and Azerbaijan. Like There are, yeah. par- there are asphalt seep fossil sites. All over the world. Because there's been microbes all over the world, and those are going to get squished into asphalt. Absolutely. So La Brea is a great reference to help people learn how asphalt sites work and compare to others. Some seem to work like La Brea. Mm -hmm. Talara in Peru has tens of thousands of specimens dominated by carnivores. Awesome. Other sites are not like that. Some of the other asphalt sites are not full of overabundant carnivores. Some... Don't preserve insects and plants very well. Hmm. Some in some places it looks like asphalt was present, but it wasn't the primary collector oh. of specimens. So not all asphalt deposits are going to be the same. Yeah. So La Brea is a great place to start. Yes. To learn about this this phenomenon, but there's more to be learned. Interesting. It makes me wonder what would what must have been happening differently. For stuff to preserve in such different ways. Yeah. I, I mean, I can't think of the answer right off, and that's that's cool. Yeah. Oh, I love I love 
things I don't know the answers to. Oh, yes. That's how science starts. Yeah. Uh, the, the greatest discoveries, in fact, every discovery in the world starts with the words, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So that's La Brea. It's kind of a cool place. It's a really cool place. They're all right. And there's so many neat dynamics that they can look into. You talking about the single human was found immediately raised the question for me of whether humans were uh, less common because we would be scared off from a field of death rather than attracted to it. And if the similar would be true for any herbivores. Smelling dead bison probably doesn't do anything to make a bison want to go that direction. Humans uh, also would be able to do what most animals could not do and tell other people. Yes. Be like, hey, wait a minute. I I see a pattern here. I'm going to go tell everybody. Don't walk over here. Or for the first near stuck. Because, you know, there had to have been animals that almost got stuck. And you know, if you got one foot in on yeah. the edge of the site, you, no, you might be able out. to pull it out. Uh, but would there be the ability to then warn the rest of your herd? Right. Uh, if you're for, a mammoth, maybe. Yeah, for mammoths, yeah. maybe. <laughs> and for humans, definitely. Yes. Uh, which would then make sense that we're not wandering into them as often. Yeah. Uh, Humans also didn't show up until the very end of these, yeah. the deposits here. So Absolutely. It, it's as a bias against human finds. <laughs> There's so much more. Go to Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's information on the website. We'll post information on the blog with lots of links, which will include links to the website because there's all sorts of cool stuff. While we were in Southern California in the Los Angeles area, we got to sit down with a bunch of people from La Brea. Yeah. Like I said, when you're done here, look on the your podcast list and there will be a bonus episode. The Voices of La Brea. We will talk to the curators and researchers and some of the students yes. who worked there over the summer. Check that out. It's your opportunity to hear some voices that aren't ours. From some cool people. And before we wrap it up, we have a patron question. Yay! Hey, if you're a patron of a certain level, you get to submit questions and we'll answer them on the podcast for everybody to hear. Like so. Like this question from Brittany, our patron, who writes, Do you have any fun or interesting reading recommendations for those with an interest in paleontology? Good question. Indeed. Will, do you have any fun or interesting reading recommendations? I I have never had a huge collection of of paleo books. Uh, you know, I've, I've never had a, a major library, but I do have some. Like I, I, it's still on my list to finish reading. But your inner fish is a famous one. I was gonna say that. Yeah, one. Yeah, that's a famous. It's one. It's so good. Mm-hmm. It's such a wonderful introduction and overview. Your inner fish by Neil Shubin. Yes, and so that's a really great one. I have one. Uh, since we've done a paleo art episode. That was is one of my favorites, and it is Dinosaur Art. Right now, Will is leaning away from the table to read the name on his bookshelf. Edited by Stephen White. <laughs> and that's just a beautiful collection of paleo arts. Uh, some really amazing ones. So like it just visually, it's fun. But it also describes a lot of the information behind each art piece. I mean, what are the animals there? What's the science and the information that's trying to be portrayed by the images and it's it's a good book we've also mentioned all yesterdays in the past yeah paleo art which is super fun oh yeah that one's that one's really really cool i also for episode 55 i got to sit down and read through the sixth extinction yeah which was really fascinating look at conservation paleobiology and extinction paleontology which was fun and it written for the general public i also recently read stephen bersati's uh late uh, released lately book 
the rise and fall of the dinosaurs, which I quite liked. Nice. It was, uh, again, written for sort of a general audience, and it takes you on the path of the people studying fossils and how that links us to what we learned in the past. Cool. Which was really cool. If you're into slightly older books, more or less sort of a historical thing, Walter Alvarez wrote a book called T-Rex and the Crater of Doom. Oh, yeah. Which is about how he and colleagues discovered the end Cretaceous extinction. That's so cool. Which is real cool. I actually I think I listened to it on audiobook Ooh, several nice. years ago. And it's it's such a cool, like, you get to hear from a person who helped make one of the biggest paleontological discoveries. It's real neat. That's so that's a real fun book. Awesome. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff out there. If you're wanting something a little more outside of books on the science, there's a fun series that I'm sure people have heard of. Most people have heard of because it was very, very popular, but it, it's kind of fallen out of the way since they haven't made new ones. Dinotopia was one of the books I loved as a kid. Oh, yeah. And helped me really get into a lot of these things. Dinotopia. Yeah, I used to read Dinotopia. It's much. a fiction, and it's about an island where prehistoric animals survived, but alongside people. And so society yeah. and... uh. Uh, civilization developed alongside dinosaurs and it's awesome i love the imagination there and they sh they make a point to show a lot of weird dinosaurs yeah they do a good job of here's a diversity yeah like they have cryolophosaurus in one of them and stuff like that cool. so lots of lots of different dinosaurs not just the three big <laughs> famous ones i'll also shout out this is in reading material but uh there is a recently developed uh, youtube series called eons yes from the same people who make SciShow and, and, and the related series, uh, Eons is super cool. Oh, yeah. And it's videos about events and important things in the history of our planet. Well, very similar topics to what we cover, but in in compacted videos with images to go along yes. with it. And we got to meet two of the hosts at NAPC. And, and they're cool. We, we got to meet Callie and Blake. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're real cool. They were, they're, they're a lot they're, of fun. They're a lot of fun. So, yeah. And, I mean, there's other there's other stuff. Oh, there's tons and tons. There's tons. So we'll think of all the other good suggestions as soon as we stop recording, <laughs> which we're going to do. Indeed. Now, thank you all for listening. Thank you, Brittany, for your uh, suggestion. Yeah. Thank you to the people who requested this episode. Thank you to all of you for listening, to our patrons as always. Everyone, go check out the blog post. We'll put links and photos as usual. These times, some of the photos will have been taken by me because I was there. We release episodes every fortnight. Episode 68, 68 <laughs> will be coming out in a couple of weeks. Check it out. We're going to be at Dragon Con. Shortly got... after 68 comes out. <laughs> yeah, right out. Yeah, right after 68, we're going to Dragon Con. It's it's an exciting time. As always, if there's something you want to hear some topic you want us to talk about, some question you have, find us. Twitter, Facebook, all the social medias, email, etc. And that's it. That's it, everyone. Thanks for listening to this really awesome site. Sign-off phrase. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. 
The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.